This morning, I'm taking a little break from Mark for the obvious Christmas season, and I want to open this morning with a reading from the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative Word of God as it comes to us in one of the overworked, overemphasized, overtaught, overpreached, classic Christmas texts from the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Beginning in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Malachi records the Lord's words to us. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace in all the arrogant, and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Doesn't that put you in the Christmas spirit? Woohoo! La 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 la. Oh, but there's more. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. I love that picture there. And I may appreciate it more than somebody who's grown up on a farm or around farms or anything else, which I didn't. I was born and bred in suburbia of the Midwest. And I can assure you that I don't ever recall really seeing a calf, much less a calf skipping out in a meadow in suburban Chicago, suburban St. Louis, or suburban Cleveland, where I, again, grew up. But I did when I was out here in Maine. And I was out in the Thule somewhere, and a bunch of cows were out there, and there was this little calf that they only noticed it because of its, you know, diminutive size against the other animals. And for some strange reason, this calf almost looked like it went a little crazy. Okay? And it was, I, I hesitate to do a calf impression, especially on just on two legs. But it started just dancing and truly skipping and leaping and it didn't like go in a straight line or anything it looked really awkward and gainly like whoa what are these leg things that i have here this is kind of fun well anyway <laughs> when i saw that i just was like that is so cool i mean it looked it looked like a child who was absolutely carefree and didn't care who was watching, and they were just going to have fun and enjoy skipping and jumping and looking crazy in the process. What a picture for the Lord to use for those who fear his name. And we pick up in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the entire chapter. The last chapter of the Old Testament. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts and the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Again, this is the last thing that was uttered by God to mankind. And it is a grave foreboding. And then there's nothing but silence. For the next 
four centuries and 30 years. 430 years, all revelation from God to man ceased. The writer of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, meaning God used all sorts of means and mechanisms in which to communicate with mankind in the Old Testament. But now we hit the last words of him recorded by Malachi, and there is 430 years of silence. There is no prophecy. There are no prophets. There are no dreams. There are no visions. There are no miracles. There are no messengers or angelic visitations. There is nothing for 430 years. Now that can just go right by us and go, yeah, 430 years, okay, why? So I want to underscore the, the longevity of the silence of God here and put it in terms that maybe we can appreciate a little more. Think about just your life right now. For you know, Some of you have been around longer than others. Some of you have hardly been around at all. Just think about the changes that you've experienced culturally, technologically, automotively, since, since you can remember at your earliest days, remember, to today. Now, again, the, long, the older you are, the more appreciation you're going to have for that. And in the first service, Vernon was with us, who was 91 yesterday. And I sit there and I say to myself, can you imagine what somebody of Vernon's age has experienced and seen in their lifetime by the way of all these changes? And, and somehow the older I get, the longer time like that, I, I start to realize, dude, you're getting to be ancient. See, good, I didn't hear any amen, so that was okay. I still remember, some of you are going to go, a what? Okay, I remember a party line. Now you're going like, all right, dude. All right, no, it's got nothing to do with a party. All right, it has to do with this old-fashioned thing that was situated on a wall or on a tabletop, connected with a curly cord with a thing called a handset, a phone. It's called a phone, a telephone. I mean, we have cell phones, but this is a telephone, right? And here's what a party line was. I remember, and this is when I was still a teenager. I pick up the phone to make a phone call, and yak, 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 yak. And it's not my sister on an extension line. It's a neighbor. Wait, you're saying what? Yes, other people would share the same line. And the fewer families you had on your party line, okay, the more expensive your phone bill was. So to kind of cut corners, you'd get a party line. And you'd hear them talking, and you could either eavesdrop and listen in, which is kind of creepy, or you'd just hang up and go, okay, <laughs> and go over again. And oh, man, really? Come on. Yeah, I mean, we're talking almost ancient. That's just our lifetimes. Now think about our country. Our country is basically, what, 230 years old. Think about what you know, okay, just of going back 230 years. Think of, of transportation, okay? If you're going to take a little trip from Boston to England, you weren't flying there, obviously. You'd get on board a ship, and you weren't there in three days. The average time was six weeks if everything went well or up to three months if things didn't go well weather-wise and everything else. Think about the mode of transportation. It was a horse, horse and buggy, or your feet. You want to get somewhere, you walk there if you didn't have a horse. 
All the changes, and then all with that, the culture and everything else. That's just our country. Now let's think about the world. 430 years takes us back to the mid to latter 1600s, okay? 1600s. Well, I can't relate to that, okay? How about, uh, who knows, Billy Shakespeare? I call him Billy Shakespeare. <laughs> William Shakespeare, you know? He just steals my purse, steals trash. Oh, yes. It's the only thing I remember from the Merchant of Venice from high school. It was also the days, I think, of Charlemagne. It's like, what? That was a real person? I thought he was only in TV movies and stuff like that. Right? And again, all that transpired in 430 years. But now God leaves them with the last word, and it's four centuries plus before there is any more communication with mankind. And after a long, long silence... It is finally interrupted by an angelic messenger by the name of Gabriel. Angelos in the Koine Greek simply means messenger. We've uh, uh, used, transliterated it basically to an angel. But it was a messenger. And in this case, it's Gabriel. We're told his name. And he goes first to see the rather unknown individual by the name of Zacharias, who would be the father of John. And then he went to Mary who obviously is much better known than Zacharias. So I want to go this morning right to the Gospel of Matthew. I know we have a limited time because of Advanced Sunday and all. And so I hope this won't be uh, more confusing than it has to be. We're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew, who again is going to uh, jump in, sort of, in a second, to the Incarnation, to the Christmas story, to the birth of God in human form on planet earth. But he doesn't jump into his gospel history with the shattering of silence by the fantastic angelic voice of Gabriel speaking to Zacharias or to Mary. No, he doesn't. He begins with a list of hard-to-pronounce names. And before you yawn, we're going to take a very quick flyover of the list recorded by Matthew, which is part, again, of the inspired, infallible, and inerrant authoritative words of God. First of all, Matthew begins with a genealogy as to, in my estimation, to set it apart in the realm of history rather than fantasy. This is not something, it's not a story that begins a long time ago in a galaxy far away, which is a contemporary version of Once Upon a Time. What begins with Once Upon a Time? Fairy tales. This is no fairy tale. And the genealogies show that this is the historical occurrences of real people who actually lived and lived through generation after generation. Now, a fairy tale can be helpful. I think of, of uh, the, most of the fairy tales that I'm familiar with actually serve to teach a pretty good langu- uh, a lesson in life, or of morality, or of how to be a better person, or, or what it's like to be a good person and person of character. That's what fairy tales do, but they do it through a fictitious story. I think of Aesop's fables. If you're familiar with those, or if you're old enough to remember, uh, I think it was along with the Looney Tunes, right? Uh, Fractured Fairy Tales, it was called, which were just kind of in cartoon form of Aesop's fables, which were awesome because in cartoon form, and they were always entertaining, but at the end, they always had a punch of some kind of moral or very practical, wholesome life lesson. 
But beginning with the genealogy here, Matthew says, I'm not talking about good advice or good counsel. It's not a fairy tale. I'm talking about recorded history. Because you see, advice or counsel is something that is, it's just information that is presented to you. And we can take that information and we can either, we will hopefully evaluate it if it's worth evaluating, if we even think so. And then if it's, if it's applicable and I think it's going to be beneficial to me, then I might do something with it. Or I just go, yeah, eh, yeah, then it's irrelevant and just ignore it. But this is not uh, counsel or advice. Matthew begins with hard history. Matthew's genealogy shows us that the Christmas story, the incarnation of God himself, is not advice. It is not a metaphor. It is not an allegory. It is not an allusion to some pithy situation with a pithy lesson that can be put easily into the for what it's worth category. It is news about something that happened. It is the timely beginning of the fulfillment of what God had mentioned progressively, beginning with the book of Genesis all the way up, and yet stands alone in its, what, in, in its worth because of what it tells us about the unfolding story of redemption. Meaning what? Meaning that the genealogy was basically a person's resume of the day. Instead of LinkedIn, you had your lineage in tow. In a communal society, it was the record of your familial breeding. It was, if you will, your pedigree. It was what showed you some of who you are historically by virtue of, again, your pedigree, of your breeding, of who who was in your family line. And assumptions, right or wrong, were made about those connections in family. And so because of that, it wasn't uncommon for somebody to clean up their resume of some of the more unsavory individuals that may have been contained therein. You know, everybody's got an Uncle Billy. Pick on Uncle Billy. You know, Uncle Billy's the guy that always shows up at all the wrong times at the family events that you, you have to, by obligation, kind of invite him to. And then he shows up and he's three sheets to the wind. Right? And everybody's like, oh my gosh, really? Why? Why of all times? You know, there goes, there goes the family situation. Or the Uncle Billy's or Ross, I don't know how many of you remember Ross Perot. Okay. Wow. I'm surprised. Yeah. Okay. Ross Perot. He was a Southern wealthy gentleman who ran for president, right? And he had a distinctive uh, way of communicating because both he was Southern and he just had a high squeaky voice that was pretty annoying. And I remember Ross Perot, he would come out with some of the craziest aphorisms, right? When he was, yeah, you know, it takes two snakes to cross a puddle. You're like, what? What does that even mean? But the one that I grabbed onto was talking about the crazy ain't that everybody keeps in the basement. Oh yeah, you know, the crazy ain't. He was talking about debt. He said, debt's that crazy ain't that you keep in the basement. Neighbors know about her. Everybody knows about her, but nobody wants to talk about her. We all have those people. If you've got a crazy ain't in the basement, you know, you don't want her on the resume. The resume was important. And so they would expunge the unsavory from their resume. In fact, Herod the Great, 
did this so that he would be able to present himself in a more kingly manner. So Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is remarkable. Notice that I didn't say it is impressive. I said it's remarkable, which means it's worth making remark about, but it's not impressive as we're going to see. It's remarkable, though, because of who the genealogy of the king of kings includes. And it wasn't expunged. It wasn't cleaned up. To begin with, one of, the, one of the most obvious and notable things, if you understood the culture of the day being a very patriarchal uh, culture in society, meaning women really were viewed as second-class citizens, there are five women listed in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior. That's kind of crazy, given the background I already said. Of those five women, three of them are kind of the classic situation that you would want to get them off your resume. Like who? Well, for example, like Rahab. Almost used part and parcel with her name. You know, when people are talking about her in Sunday school, Rahab the harlot. You know what a harlot is. But not only that, she was a Canaanite. The Canaanite were, were, were deplorable, despicable people, a culture that was despised by God because of their idolatrous ways and had no use for Jehovah. And yet Rahab is mentioned right there. And if you know the story of Rahab with Joshua and, and uh, Jericho and all of that, you understand. That's who Rahab was. And then there was Ruth. Now, Ruth was a classy woman, okay? But Ruth was a Moabitess, meaning she was a Moabite, not a mosquitobite. She was a Moabite, which means she, she was from Moab. Now, the Moabites were even more despicable and nasty than the Canaanites, and yet here Ruth is on the scene and she gets proposed to by Boaz, a very important figure in genealogical studies and research concerning King David because when she had her child, now through her husband Boaz, she gave birth to the one who would be the grandfather of King David. And then you have Tamar. Tamar, again, she was a member of what is called the oldest profession, or at least that's what she's accused of. I'm not sure that's fair. But her situation, if you don't remember, was that her father-in-law, by the name of Judah, a big name in the Old Testament, her father-in-law was walking along one day, coming home from a convention. I just threw that in. And he sees this woman who happens to be, he doesn't know that it's his own daughter-in-law, Tamar, her, whose husband had died. And so Tamar is desperately in wanting of a child. She wants to have a son to carry on the name, etc., etc., that goes with that. And so she dresses herself up in the classic you know, Middle Eastern garb, which is basically just your eyes showing. And so the fine, upstanding Judah propositions her, and pays her for services rendered. And of course, she had devised all this because she wanted to become pregnant by her father-in-law. Well, we're then told, and they're also mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, that she gave birth to Perez and Zerah, who were two more really astounding, stellar individuals, not. So these are the kind of people that are in, listed here by Matthew as being directly in line of our Savior. All of them are outsiders. 
all of them are viewed as being unclean, even by God, concerning the worship of Yahweh in the temple services. Now, one woman that, that kind of just is of note by her absence there is Bathsheba. If you'd expect anybody to kind of show up, it would be Bathsheba. And some people have contended that, well, she's not in the genealogy because of what happened with with Uriah and King David and all of that. But Tim Keller, and uh, I, want to, I want to note in fairness um, that my inspiration for the message this morning was from, is from Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan and a, a stellar author um, in his brand new book called The Hidden Christmas. And so I just, again, want to throw that out there lest I be accused of plagiarism because if you document where you get something from, it's called scholarship. So there you go. Well, Keller notes that the underscored, if you will, just, you know, kind of literarily thinking mention of those included in Matthew's genealogy were categorically intentional reminders of the very nastiness of humanity, that these were the very kinds of individuals that you would never want to be associated with, much less have them in your bloodline and there on your resume for everybody to know, oh, that was your grandmother? That was your uncle? Oh, yeah. But he says, no, that's the whole point of it occurring there. The genealogy, though, in all of its candor, by virtue of its awfulness, is actually amazing. The genealogy of Jesus, as bad as it is, and it is, is glorious for humanity. It is glorious for us. And here is why. Among other things, it shows that no one is beyond God's grace. I mean, imagine the likes of the people that are mentioned there. It shows that no one comes to the incarnate God on their own. It shows that the people wanting to be used by God and favored by God and, and held up and remembered for all time are not the smart people. They're not the moral people. They're not the, the, the upstanding, wholesome, successful kinds of people. They are the deceivers and even murderers. And yet, amazingly, the author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that Jesus is not embarrassed by us. He's not embarrassed by Uncle Billy and the crazy ain't. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It was fitting for him, Jesus, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. And of course, implicit in that categorically is sistren as well. Saying instead, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, in light of that, since the children share in flesh and blood, and boy, does the genealogy reveal that, he himself likewise, Jesus, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The nastiness of the genealogy 
is crazy encouraging to the likes of us. What else do the genealogies tell us? Well, it tells us that God is uh, not in too big of a hurry, it seems, concerning you know, his promises, and in this case, the greatest promise of all. Because we're going to read in just a second here about the generations that we see passing in those genealogies showing that God's promise concerning the coming Redeemer took centuries. And yet Paul writes to the church of Galatia in chapter 5 saying that it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth His Son. It wasn't random. It wasn't like God's going, huh, what am I going to do today? Oh, you know what, maybe I'll, maybe I'll kick that Jesus thing into place right now. No, everything was predetermined and laid out. And God didn't care if it took thousands and thousands of years. God knows what he's doing, and he had everything on the timeline that he wanted it on. And Jesus does not come by birth any sooner or any later than God had demanded and saw that it was good. Finally, in this boring genealogy, we learn that Jesus is the apex. That is, Jesus is the grand finale of everything. And so after this genealogy, Matthew finishes this pericope, writing, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon... 14 more generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, yet another 14 generations. Real quickly here, but not to diminish this. Three periods of 14 generations. They can easily and readily be broken down into six periods of seven generations each. Seven generations... And six categories is 42, which means now we get to the last or the seventh sevens of generations with Jesus' birth, which puts us at year number 50. Why is all of this significance with the sevens and the generations and now the 50th year pertaining to Jesus? It is because the number seven, as crazy books have been written about numerology, and most of it is crazy and speculative at best. But the idea of seven being a very special number in Scripture is ironclad. Seven is the number of completion, and we need to pay attention to it. What are we told from the very beginning? God created the universe in six days, and what? On the what day? On the seventh day, God rested. Six days the work was done, and on the seventh the number, the day of completion, the day of perfection, God rested. Secondly, we come just two books later in the book of Leviticus, and by divine decree, God tells this agrarian culture that you are ordered to leave your fields lie fallow. That is, means to give them a rest, do not plant anything on them every seventh year. Why? Again, so that the land can rest. And then at the end of seven years, of seven periods, of seven years of lying the land lie fallow, we come again now into the seven times seven is 49. Now we enter the 50th year. And the 50th year was set out by God called the year of Jubilee. And why is that significant? Because in the year of Jubilee, slaves 
were ordered to be set free. Land was returned to its original owners and people had to rest in the year of Jubilee. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 has some strong words concerning this idea of rest, and he is looking back to everything I just talked about in the Old Testament, explaining now from a post-Christian, from a post-Christ, New Testament standpoint, what the whole year of Jubilee was all about. Listen to his words. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us fear now, while a promise remains of entering God's rest. This is not talking about a temporary rest. This is talking about the ultimate rest when we all who die in faith are to go to be with God and we enter that perfect rest. While a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear if any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they, referring to they are the people of the Old Testament, just as they did also, but the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that holy, sacred rest, just as God said, as I swore in my wrath, they, the unbelievers, shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning that seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not, referring to the unbelievers, enter my rest. Therefore, in light of this, since it remains for some to enter it, who are the some? Those, going back to even Malachi, those who look forward to the coming Redeemer, the Messiah. Now in our age, who look back to the Redeemer who has come. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as been said before, today if, you're, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest meaning an ultimate, complete, final, completed rest. He would not have spoken of another rest, another day after that. And so we see there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The genealogy is completed. The generations are spelled out. And the last, last thing Matthew says there is, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And we're going to hear more about Zacharias and Mary and Gabriel coming to them on Christmas Eve. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did and did not enter his rest. And there is so much more in the genealogies. So again, I say to you, God doesn't put filler in. He doesn't throw in names to kind of tangle our tongues and get us all discombobulated. They are there as good news, pointing again to the good news one, whose name is Jesus. Let me have you stand. And again, reminder now, Jeff Dion is going to come up. And women, feel free to leave, but feel free to stay here. And having been here through the first service, I would say... Uh, you want to stick around. This is, it's, you'll see why, if you do. But you're free to go. Father in heaven, thank you. 
Thank you for the things of genealogical nature, Lord, that, that I just, I remember so often, I would just kind of go and read through them and get done with them so I could check it off. Thank you for such a profound message that you are the master of taking nasty, polluted clay and creating something beautiful out of it if we just bow before you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming as our Redeemer, Savior, and King. In your name we pray. Amen.